is uh, an interesting concept, right? Where, uh, and having you seen the money and the, the movie, see, how many you seen the money? Right. I haven't seen the money in a while, but how many have seen the movie uh, Moneyball? Okay. So, I'm not the expert in baseball. My husband says, please don't do sports analogies from the pulpit because I, I sometimes get them wrong. So, but, but the basics being, um, Billy Bean, Oakland A's, general manager, the, the challenge is how do you build more with less? How, do you, how does he get more wins with less money? How, how does he, with less talent, less resources, get more? And as we look at um, our text today, uh, we find a lot of interesting analogies that are gonna, we're going to parallel this. Because what Billy Bean does is, is from this, this young kid that, that proposes this new strategy in baseball, it was, was not implemented at that time. At that time, the, the strategy to win was load your team with superstars. Load your team with whoever, who everyone else wants. And it left those that weren't the single stars cheaper and in many ways more available. And so what this kid says is, hey, it's not, winning baseball is not about loading a team with single stars. It's about the concept of, of, of team dynamics. It's a concept of putting together the right team. And, and when you think of it in a way of team dynamics, you start to look at people that are often overlooked. You start to see value in people of what they can bring to the team. Because now your objective is about building a whole team. Now your objective isn't just bringing on a single person that's so great and so good. Now your objective is who does this team need and what does that person have, whether anyone recognizes it or not, that can bring value to the team. And, and what happened in this is that, he, if some of you know the movie, ends up having a, a, a historically winning season and he gets job offers and so forth. But basically, he changes the way baseball business is done at that point on. And, and what our text is going to tell us today is that, is, is that very much when we get into to, to our next section in, in our uh, series, Roots and Stems, as we're looking at the book of Acts, as we begin in Acts chapter 6, is that... that the way that church business is done is now going to be changed forever as well. See, So up until Acts chapter 6, we, we've had um, oh, the heavy hitters, right? We've had basically the apostles in the limelight. From, from Acts 1, through Pentecost, through preaching, through persecution, prayer, uh, teaching, it's all really been about the apostles. It's been the heavy hitters, the superstars, if you will. And, and what's going to happen in Acts chapter 6, we're going to see, is that these heavy hitters realize now that they just can't do it all. They just, the, the church now has increased to such a size that the demands uh, of, of the church business, if you will, the demands of the ministries of the people, show them they've got to start thinking differently. They have to start thinking about team dynamics. Which, and therefore, I've entitled our sermon, uh, uh, church work is teamwork. See? They've got to start thinking about church dynamics, and the business of church from Acts chapter 6 on is changed forever. And remember in, in, our, in our series, and we, we keep noting that, that, that we're looking for our roots at this point. We're, we're going to get the stems, that part of the sermon series, but right now we're still finding our roots. And so we're looking back in Acts chapter 6, we're trying to find what does it mean to be a church today? What are the roots that ground us that are what we would call 
super cultural. Uh, uh, they, they pass beyond culture and time. They're, they're not just about that culture, but they apply to every generation. Those are our roots. And, and I believe as we look at our passage today, we're going to find some things that really apply to us today that apply to them as well. So if you have your Bibles, if you look to uh, Acts chapter 6, we're going to um, be looking at the first seven verses of Acts chapter 6 this morning. Mike, can you hand me my water, please? Let me just start our passage with the first verse. In those days when the number of disciples was increasing, the Grecian Jews among them complained against the Hebraic Jews because their widows were being overlooked in the daily distribution of food. Okay, so the first thing that we want to, to note, this is really the, the context of our passage. So in, in, first of all, it, basically the, in those days when the number of disciples was increasing, you see the increase of the church. So they're really growing in magnitude. We've seen that, right? Some big growth spurts. We, we would call them, um, in, in a physical term, maybe growing pains, right? I have grandkids. They, they often come to me and tell me, my leg hurts, Grandma. My, my arm hurts. We, you and I both know that's probably growing pains. Every healthy organization is growing, and every healthy organization that's growing also experiences growing pains. And this is what the church begins to experience. Now, there's some unfamiliar terms that we see here. The Grecian Jews, um, among them complained against the Hebraic Jews. So let me just stop there. So in Judaism, there, there were really, at this, at this point, there were, about two, there were many different sects, but there were two different groups of people uh, that, that were coming together in Judaism that also were coming to the gospel. So this wasn't unique to the Christians. This was also throughout Judaism. You had the Hebraic Jews. Hebraic Jews spoke Aramaic. Jesus spoke Aramaic. Uh, they spoke Aramaic. They were closely tied to the temple. They were very orthodox. They were like your conservative Christians, if you will, uh, because they lived primarily generation after generation in Palestine, in Jerusalem. So, th- so they were closely tied to the law. They were closely tied to the orthodox Judaism, if you will. And then we have the Grecian Jews. Uh, Grecian Jews... Uh, can, can basically be referred to as Hellenist Jews. Hellenist Jews speak Greek. They speak Greek because they've lived in distant areas away from Palestine for most of their lives, but now they've returned to Jerusalem. Maybe some of them came just to celebrate Pentecost. They responded to the Holy Spirit. They responded to Jesus, and now they're not leaving. Now they're going to stay where the new church is planted. So we, we have the, the, the Grecian or the Hellenist Jews that basically, culturally, they, they, they act like Greeks. Uh, you have the Hebraic, or the Hebrew Jews, if you will, um, and they're, they're very um, orthodox. They, they act more Hebrew, if, if you will. And, and really what divides them is the same thing that divides us today, right? You've got language, geography, and culture. <clears throat> but, they're, but they're all within Judaism, and now you find these two groups within the Christian church. So the first growing pains, if you will, is that the Grecian Jews, complained that their widows were being overlooked in the daily distribution of food. So basically there were um, a widow, it was a widow issue, because a lot of the widows that had lived, the Grecian Jews, remember living outside of Palestine most of their lives, had come to Jerusalem for a certain reason, had decided to stay. Maybe they didn't, obviously didn't have a husband, maybe they didn't have any money left, maybe they didn't have property left, they'd come to the end of their rope, their only hope was to be taken care of by their own system. 
So the, the Grecian Jews are, are, had a lot of widows that were in need because they, their families were probably way back where they lived and they, they didn't have anyone else to take care of them. So they could work and they were strongly in need. So going on to verse, verse 2, so the twelve gathered all the disciples together and said, <clears throat> it would not be right for us to neglect the ministry of the word of God in order to wait on tables. Brothers, choose seven men from among you who are known to be full of spirit and wisdom. We will turn this responsibility over to them, and we will give our attention to prayer and the ministry of the word. Now, so at first, it, it, I don't know about you, but at, at first I'm thinking, well, it sounds a little arrogant of the apostles, right? Remember that, that when we're trying to find the meaning of a passage, we're trying to find that super cultural, timeless principle that applies to us as it did then. First thing we want to be aware of is what makes us uncomfortable. Remember, pay attention to the questions you have because usually that is going to be the key to the whole passage for us. So the first thing we have to understand is we have to get in their language, if you will. So the apostles are responding to the criticism by basically the first thing they're doing is recognizing that the task of caring for these widows along with teaching, preaching, and prayer has become too great for them. That's really what they're saying overall. It's just too much for us. We cannot do it. Now, this wasn't a put-down towards the relief of the poor, nor was it a way for them to um, uh, use their uh, superiority over anyone else that might do that kind of a role. It was just more of an acknowledgement that they can't do both well and that they, that they shouldn't neglect the one calling and assignment that God has actually given them. So it, we know this because serving tables, if you will, that sounds like a waiter or waitress, uh, but serving tables... Is, is the best English equivalent we can come up with to the original Greek. The original Greek, Luke used the word diakonia, which is service. He used it both for the service of the ministry of the word, or you could say service of the word or ministry of the word, and he used the same word for the service or ministry of serving these widows or serving tables. So serving tables, what, it wasn't an issue of this is a less ministry, a lesser ministry, uh, being Jews, they would know that that's not true. That one of the highest honors in, in the Judaic law was to take care of the poor, sell what you have and give to the poor. So, so they weren't in any way demeaning that. They were basically saying that, that, the need, that the needs of the church have become so great that they can't attend to the service or the ministry that God has assigned them and attend to that. They're not doing either, either one well, right? In fact, they're basically acknowledging we're not doing either one well. Now, there was no favoritism being shown. They're, 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 they're making that clear. The favoritism wasn't there. Um, there was, it wasn't purposeful. They just couldn't do both. <clears throat> and so, um, <clears throat> so neither ministry is superior to the other is what they're basically saying. Both are Christian ministries, that is, for you and I, that are very in different ways serving God and ministering to people. Both are servants or service ministries. They're just different in the role and the gifting and the empowerment that God has given them. So um, the main point the apostles want us to know here is that they are admitting themselves that they can't do it. So they come up with a solution. And, and, and the solution is, is they're going to appoint a new group of leaders, right? The new group of leaders are going to appoint seven men and, and to take care of this ministry, right? So in, in this, they're going to point the solution being we need to build a church team, right? We need to think about team dynamics. 
And when we think about team dynamics, they're, at, they're saying, what's the first thing they see? Look for those men who are known among us who are filled with the Spirit and with wisdom. Right? So what is he saying by that? He's, they're not saying we want to make sure they're Christian, meaning they have the Holy Spirit, and they're really good worldly leaders. And they're really smart. That, that's not what he's saying. It's actually one and the same. He's saying look for those men who, who among us are known to have spiritual wisdom, to, have, to be spiritual leaders, meaning for this task and this type of ministry, look for those people that have that kind of passion, anointing, and gifting from the Holy Spirit. That's clear among us that, wow, that person would be really great at that. That's what they're saying. We don't want to just assign anybody. We want the Spirit to show us who God's choice is for this ministry. And, and to be honest, I think it validates the validity of serving these widows when they're saying we need Spirit-led, Spirit-appointed people for both what? The ministry of the Word, for prayer and for preaching and for teaching and evangelism, as well as the ministry of the widows. You see, both are important. And, and to God, neither, or neither are less important, but they distinguish by who, what has God called each and every person in the church to do? What, what's the passion each one has? So, so they appoint seven, they look for seven uh, people, if you will, <clears throat> to do that. And I want to look at spiritual leadership in Numbers 27, 18 through 20, Grant, just to show you what, what the spirit of leadership looks like. So the Lord said to Moses, take Joshua, son of Nun, a man in whom is the spirit of leadership, and lay your hands on him. Have him stand before Eleazar the priest in the entire assembly and commission him in their presence. Give him some of your authority so the whole Israelite community will obey him. So this is the Old Testament example that, that there's different roles, right? So Joshua isn't a priest. But still there's, there's a spirit of leadership that's given to Joshua. There's a spirit of leadership that is recognized by Moses that he puts in charge for a certain, certain task, if you will. If we were to look at our church uh, dynamics or our team dynamics, you, you might distinguish them between, it's, it's kind of a funny distinction, but you might distinguish them between pastors and directors. So pastors are typically gifted with, called to the ministry of or the service of preaching, teaching, evangelism, and prayer. Whereas directors are usually gifted and called to a, a ministry of organizational leadership in the spirit. Uh, for that task, basically compassionate and, and, and empowered and equipped to do that ministry. It, it's an, it's a, a spiritual leadership, if you will. It's a running something, overseeing, connecting people, getting that job done, um, if you will. So it basically verifies that we need spirit-led, spirit-appointed, and anointed leaders to help run the ministries of the church that all are vital to a healthy church. So this was the first, if you will, church meeting that's called. Look with me in um, verse, uh, verse 5. This proposal pleased the whole group. They chose Stephen, a man of full faith and of the Holy Spirit, also Philip, Prochorius, Nicanor, Timon, Perneus, and Nicholas from Antioch, a convert to Judaism. They presented these men to the apostles who prayed and laid hands on them. So in many ways, this was the first church meeting. It's the first annual meeting, right? It's what we call a church congregational governance, right? So what do they do? They call a meeting and they propose to the whole church this new idea of how to build church dynamics, how to build a good team. This is the way we want to structure it. 
What do you guys think? And so the whole group agreed. In many ways, as a covenant church, we also have congregational governance. We Really, our church governance, not every church governs itself a little bit differently, but in the covenant uh, denomination, if you will, our church governance is congregational, which means we would come together as a whole group and propose to the whole church structure ideas. This is the way we'd like to structure the church. What do you all think? Right? So that's really one of our roots that I can find in there. Now, that's why it's so important. Some of you wonder, why? What's the big deal about church membership? Well, church membership means now you can vote. So voting's a big deal when you're a congregational church, right? Because we're moving together with the Lord. That it's not just one people or four people or five people, and, and there's different church governance, and, and I'm not saying either or back. saying this particular style really demands that everybody gets on board, that everybody becomes a member and everyone shows up to that boring annual meeting, you know, that nobody wants to go to, that we try and serve pie and we do all kinds of crazy things to try and get everyone there. But there's a real purpose to it, right? Because this is really our form of governance. Now, this can be quite challenging, too. It can be quite challenging to have so many voices at the table. Trust me, this can be very challenging at times, right? Everyone has an opinion. Everyone thinks they're right, right? Everyone wants to do it a little differently. So what is required even more importantly than any other kind of church governance, is that the church learns and is shaped to listen to the Holy Spirit through prayer and the Word. That's really the pastor's role, especially in in congregational governance. The pastor's role is to help the church. One of the key pastor's roles is to help the church lean into the Holy Spirit, grow spiritually, grow in the Word, grow in prayer, so that when we come together, we move in the Spirit together. Because in this style of leadership, if we're not listening to the Holy Spirit, all we have is differences of opinion. We just go round and round and round, right? So it's just a great insight for us about congregational church governance, if you will. <clears throat> and we, and we actually, we see this result in, in the story. We see, I don't know if you caught it, but when we're not listening to the Holy Spirit, when we're not tuning into Him, when we're not in prayer and the Word on a regular basis, we lack understanding. And, and we start complaining, and, and you have the potential church split. See, what happened when the Grecian Jews came is they complained and they assumed, what did they assume? There was favoritism going on. They assumed that there was inequality, and they were angry about it. Now, let me just ask you, what if they would have prayed a little more about it? What if they would have sought the Holy Spirit? What if they would have sought the Holy Spirit and the Holy Spirit would have led them in the truth, the truth being the, the apostles, the heavy hitters, couldn't do it all. They weren't trying to, be in, to, to show favoritism. And maybe then had the church been more sensitive to the Holy Spirit, maybe they would have helped the apostles out, said, hey, how can we help you, instead of just criticize them and assume favoritism. You see the importance of listening to the Holy Spirit, the importance of being in the Word and being in prayer, the importance of not just thinking that uh, we're always right. Proverbs 3, 5, and 7 says it this way, and I just have it on my own uh, notes here. Trust God from the bottom of your heart, the message says. Don't try and figure out everything on your own. Listen for God's voice in everything you do. Everywhere you go, he's the one who will keep you on track. Don't assume that you know it all. I love how the message says that. Run to God. So important, especially in a congregational governance, that we're all running to God. It's going to help us move together. 
We also see in this passage the importance of laying on of hands. How many of you have seen us do that as a church? We, we have someone come, a missionary comes, or we send someone out. Or we, we, we pray for them and we lay on of hands. And, and we see really the, the, the meaning of that is a form of commissioning leadership and authority in the church for the work of the church. Look with me in Numbers 15, Grant. I think we have that one as well, 22 through 23. Um, Moses did. Did we start with Moses? Okay. So, okay, Moses did as the Lord commanded him. He took Joshua and had him stand before Eleazar, the priest, and the whole assembly. Then he laid his hands on him and commissioned him as the Lord instructed through Moses. So, so what's happening here is there, there's, a, there's a commissioning and a transfer of authority from Moses to Joshua. And if you look in Deuteronomy 34.9, we have that as well. Now Joshua, son of Nun, was filled with the spirit of wisdom, right? This is the Old Testament, guys. This is what the New Testament is talking about. Look for someone who has a spirit of wisdom because Moses had laid his hands on him. So the Israelites listened to him and did what the Lord had commanded Moses. So, so we know it's not just they were looking for any Christian to do the job. They were looking for a spirit-empowered, filled person that now they can entrust and give authority to to oversee that ministry. Now, now let, me just, let me just clarify. We're all called to serve the poor. We're all called to be in the Word. We're all called to pray. We're all called to share our faith. What this context is talking about is church structure, church leadership, if you will. So it, it's indicating a conferring of authority that is then pleasing and honoring to God, right? So what are the results? Look with verse 7 as we close out the story. So the word of God spread, the number of disciples in Jerusalem increased rapidly, and a large number of priests became obedient to the faith. A large number of priests became obedient to the faith. So the effect of this new appointment, the effect of this new church dynamic, that is not just going to be the 12 heavy hitters anymore, that now we're going to actually confer some authority to someone that we see that the Holy Spirit has built and equipped and empowered to do this job, and then we're going to lay hands on that person and ask the Lord to empower that person and bless that person in that ministry so that it will be pleasing unto the Lord. The effect is that what? The church grew and increased, right? Uh, Luke's favorite phrase is, the word of God increased. It's one of his favorite phrases you'll notice as we go through, that Luke is acknowledging from, that from the spirit-led agreement to form a more dynamic church team, the proclamation of the word increased and was effective and winning converts. So, this really also confirms another part of the covenant church, which is we have these main affirmations. We have six of them. We have main affirmations. One of them is we affirm the whole mission of the church. And what that is saying is that church is not just preaching, teaching, and evangelism and prayer. The church is also all the other ministries that are involved in being a witness of Christ in the world. That, that every ministry counts, see? So what we see in the whole mission of the church and what they're saying is that, that, that when they saw that, when they saw the very valid need to have someone actually leading this other ministry so that they could do the ministry God has called them to do, the church increased. And it says it increased in such a way that, the, that there were many priests that, that responded to faith, meaning they responded to the gospel message. Now this is no light thing. It says, in, in, as I did my research, that up to 18,000 priests and Levites rotated into temple uh, duties, if you will, during the year. 
18,000. And it says many of those now responded to the gospel. So what's happening is that when the church starts to build a team, their witness becomes even stronger, right? The, the, the light becomes brighter, and people start to see the, the gospel message that's being preached. They see it worked out with hands and feet, that it's a whole body of Christ. It really validates uh, the church dynamics, if you will. So as we look to, to, to this passage and, and some of the resources we've found for our roots, what's the so what, right? What, what are the two so what's for us today? The first one is this. God calls his people to ministry. He calls different people to different ministries, right? That all the work of the church is equally valuable to God, but different in function and different in the people that God places in it. And that all the work, when it's done in response to the Holy Spirit's calling and leading, moves the church forward, right? There's no such thing, let me just say it, there's no such thing as real work of the church. There's no such thing as, really in many ways, I know we use it, we don't mean it to use it negatively, there's no such thing as support ministry. We're not supporting everything else, see? We're all called by the Holy Spirit to do the assignment that he's called us to do. And each and every person that responds to that, each and every ministry that's a part of that is moving the church forward together, see? There's no real work. There's the work of the Holy Spirit on the earth through his church. That's our key spiritual truth this morning, actually. If you look on the top of your note sheet, it says, when we are faithful to do what the Holy Spirit is calling and equipping us to do, the gospel spreads and the church increases. So when we're faithful to do what the Holy Spirit is calling and equipping us to do, the gospel spreads and the church increases. That's really the key spiritual truth. And why is that? Because it is God who calls and commissions us, right? It's God who empowers the church, not our human organization, right? What do they keep saying? We need to look to the Spirit. We need to pray. We need to see who among us we agree collectively together is, is equipped for that ministry. It's God who assigns and God who gives different people to different ministries. And the way that he does that is, is through free gifts. It's, it's really through God's grace. Now, many of us just know God's grace as that's what saved me. It's God's grace that forgave my sins. I could never earn God's favor, which is very true. But grace, or charis, the Greek word, also means God's free gift to you. God's free blessings to you. And the church is built and empowered by God's spiritual gift. That's what it means to say when the church is empowered by God's grace. It's when we acknowledge that the church, the team dynamic, the best team we're going to get with less. And we know less, right, Oak Hill? Okay, so the best church dynamic that we're going to get with less, right, is when we depend on God's grace, the gifts that God has given us, and we look to one another, and we see how we each have been called and equipped and appointed for certain roles and tasks within the whole church ministry. That's God's grace, if you will. The church is run by those. And, and I think it's interesting because we have to note that, that they weren't given a title, Right? There's no title given to them. It's just an assignment. It's just a responsibility. Go and serve tables. That's why it felt demeaning to us. We thought that's their title. It's just their task. The church is not built on titles. Believe me, as a woman pastor, I would love to get rid of the title and just do the job. It's just kind of our culture. We're all into titles. It's really about spiritual gifts. 
It's really about what has God called each and every one of us to do in order to be the best team possible for Jesus Christ. So when we think about that, when you think about that in here at Oak Hills, what do you do well for Jesus? What are you most passionate about? What has he given you a burning desire for? What kind of people do you want to help and reach for Jesus? Do you know your spiritual gifts? We're going to look a little bit about that into the home joy for the home groups uh, this week. Do you know your spiritual gifts? If you know them, are you investing in them? Are you developing them? Because that's the key to the church dynamic. That's the key to a winning team. If we don't base our church on, on God's grace, the free gifts that he gives us, we're all just another human organization. We're not going to have the same power that we need that only comes from the Holy Spirit for the work of the church. And, and, and I just want to clarify, too, that because Christ's mission is to the world, it's not just what we do inside the walls, right? That God's grace has been given to each and every one of us where we work. That God's grace has been given to each and every one of us where we live. So we're still to tune into God's gifts and grace as a believer everywhere. Because God has asked us all to win souls for him, but he's given us different ways to do it. How can I best reflect and, 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 and point to Jesus in my workplace? How can I best reflect and point to Jesus in my family, in my neighborhood? See? But it's still looking to him and saying, what did you make me to do? What am I supposed to be doing to be obedient to you? Not what I want, not what I think, not what the world tells me, not what people think I'm limited to, but Lord, what do you think you want me to do? Remember in, in the Billy Bean thing, I love how, how this new way of thinking helps you to see value, helps help them to see value in, in team members that, that other teams would just overlook, right? But when we look to God, we know God doesn't overlook anybody, that he's given free gifts to everyone. Each and every one of you have a spiritual gift, I promise you, because it's scriptural. God does not play favorites. He doesn't pass anyone up. They're all different, but they're all valid. And God is the one who assigns them. And, and, and they're customized, if you will. And, and one of the things we have to learn in our spiritual gifting is to be content in them. So one of the reasons you want to know them is you don't want to be outside your spiritual gifting. Trust me. You just don't want to do that. That's very uncomfortable. Have you ever tried to do something for the Lord that you're just not good at? Right? So We know some people that try to, you know, let's say as a funny example, try to, try to be on the worship team, can't sing. Right? I know John Bates would love to be on the worship team, but we won't let him because that is not a spiritual gift. <laughs> Thanks for being a good sport, John. <laughs> I mean, just being spiritual, John. Just being spiritual. So we learn to be content with what God gives us. Why? Because we trust our Heavenly Father knows what's best, right? He knows what's best for Oak Hill. He knows what's best for our lives. Look with me on the screen in 2 Corinthians 10:14. We, however, Paul says, will not boast beyond proper limits, but will confine our boasting to the sphere of service God himself has assigned to us, a sphere that also includes you. So I love that, a sphere of service. We will limit ourselves to that. We will find our contentment in that, right? This is what is sometimes called the grace zone, if you will. When we understand our limits and we live within this grace zone, living within this grace zone is, is actually a freedom. Second uh, Corinthians 3.17 says, Now the Lord is spirit, and where the spirit of the Lord there is freedom. You see, there's something really attractive by a person who is free now to just live within the free gifts that God has given them. They don't need to prove themselves in other areas. They're not trying to compete or measure up. 
They're, they're not trying to show they can do everything. There's something really attractive about that person because they're free, right? They're free from trying to prove themselves. They're, they're, they're content in themselves. Why? Because now they're about pleasing God and not about people. Something really beautiful about that. Living in this gray zone uh, demands courage, right? Sometimes it's courage to say no. You know, sometimes we just say someone asks us to do something and you just know that you know that you know you would not be good at. You know that God's saying, don't do that, but you're afraid to say no because it will make you look like you're not willing to serve. Well, people think of you, especially in a small church. Everyone knows what everybody does and doesn't do, right? One time I was asked a long time ago, my, I was a new Christian, I was asked to, to, to help with the, in the summer relief for the regular children's ministry teachers to be the summer teachers. I knew in my head, don't do that. God's saying, Marilyn, don't do that. You're not going to like it. You're going to be miserable. You're going to hate it. I did it because I was afraid to say no. It was the most miserable summer of my life. It's the only time in my life I hated going to church. I counted the Sundays until that, that summer was over. I just, I, I wasn't gifted in it. I wasn't good at it, and I wasn't gifted in it. And sometimes it's the courage to say no. Sometimes it's the courage to step up, right? Sometimes it's the courage to, to step into it. To, 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 to step into what God sees that you're good at, even though you don't see it. Even though other people don't see it. As a woman pastor, let me tell you, I live in that great zone. I live all the time in that great zone. of people that see me, first of all, as a woman, how can she be a lead pastor? But I have to step into the great zone and be free and be confident and step up with courage because I know that God has called me to it. See? There's a freedom in it, but it takes courage to live in that great zone. Sometimes to say no, sometimes to step up. But that's exactly what the apostles are modeling for us. And it leads us to our final takeaway this morning, which is those called to prayer and the ministry of the word must not allow themselves to be distracted from their priorities. It's one of the main messages of this passage, right? It, we had to unpack everything to realize they're not just being arrogant. Right? We, ha- we had to really get in the context to understand what they're really trying to say. This is what they're saying, see? That those who are called and commissioned to the ministry of the word, they're usually what we would call pastors, right? They're, they're, they're called and equipped and gifted with, with uh, preaching, teaching, prayer, and evangelism. And those that are called with those gifts should not allow themselves to be distracted with other valid ministries, valid gifts. There's actually neglecting the Holy Spirit if we do. Now, oftentimes, I think the church get into what, what we call in our 21st century and our Western culture is, is, is the professional mode. It's a professional church mindset. It's this. We have hired you to do everything. We have hired you to run the church. We're, in fact, we're going to pay you to do it. And we see our tithe as we've hired you. That's a professional church mindset. That is not a spiritual mindset. Because what is our tithe? Our tithe is faith and trust in God the Father to take care of us and putting him first in our lives to honor him. That's what our tithe is. And then, according to what God provides for the church, then we call a pastor to do what? To preach, teach, evangelize, and pray. Not to do it all. It's not a professional mindset. I really honestly believe that that is one of the big downfalls or the reason for the, the fall of most pastors. Because the church has a professional mindset and that pastor gets so overwhelmed. There's catastrophes on their family, their health, their personal lives. Right? 
At the very least, the teaching and preaching of the church is diluted because the pastor isn't given time to study and pray. Also, the members of the church aren't given the spiritual opportunity to use the gifts that God has given them when the pastor's doing everything. Sometimes it's the pastor's fault. Sometimes the pastor just wants his or her hands in everything. And sometimes it's the people's fault. It doesn't matter. The, the consequences are disastrous. It's not the roots of what the church dynamics are really all about. Now, to be clear, pastors are not apostles, right? The apostles were, how are they distinguished? How are we talk about the apostles? They were the ones given the unique assignment to teach and form the New Testament, to teach and form the gospel message. That's not what pastors do. Pastors are called to expound on what the apostles have given us, right? It's a spiritual gifting to expound on that and apply it to today, right? So in that, it's a vital ministry. In fact, I, I'm, I'm being uh, in the process of being ordained. And the call to be ordained is a very serious call. It, 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 it is a call that, that is, is not just a job description, if you will, that we are called to dedicate our lives to this task. We are called to dedicate our resources, our time, our talents, everything to preaching, teaching, prayer, and evangelism. That's what it means to be ordained in word and sacrament. Therefore, we should not allow ourselves to be distracted by ministries of administration, ministries of social work, ministries of other ministries that other Christians have been given gifts and empowerment to do. The pastor's job is to lead and shape and, and encourage and, and help that person find that gift, walk with that person through it, through prayer, through preaching, through teaching, and help launch that person into that gift. That's the church dynamics. But a pastor, if the pastor takes it all on, he or she is, is, is disobedient to God. They are being distracted. That's what the apostle is, is really uh, trying to say. I think there's an underlying last little element in here that we can easily not see if we don't focus in on it. And that is, did you notice that the, the, the apostles are saying, we are called to preach, teach, we know evangelize, and pray. Wow. We, they put prayer in with the same weight as preaching and teaching. How many times in churches and organizations have we said, yes, we believe in prayer, but we don't give it the same weight as preaching and teaching? How many times have I said, if we had a prayer morning, I know a few of you would show up, but not all of you would show up. There was no sermon, no music, no food, no donuts. How many would show up just for prayer? It's part of the ministry of the Word. It's a valid ministry. Why? Because if we're preaching the Word without prayer then the word is, 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 is fruitless, it's powerless, it's, it's not going to bear the same spiritual eternal fruit. And if we're praying without the word, prayer is without focus, see? It lacks direction. It's, it's a natural couple, if you will. That's why they're saying the pastor should not be distracted by other assignments because the pastor, get this, is actually paid to pray. Part of the pastor's job should be taking time that week to pray. It is not my vacation time when I say I need to stay home and pray today. It is not a personal health day. It is part of the ministry of the Word. And our Western culture has so minimized the power and the validity of prayer that we put it off the side You do that on your own personal time. I do pray on my own personal time, but it's part of my calling. It's part of my role here. Prayer and ministry of the Word go naturally together. And, and, and as I was studying this, 
I, I just had to grin because, as you, many of you know, Mike, my husband is a is a prayer intercessor. His, his gifting from the Lord, his spiritual calling, is prayer. Mine is preaching, teaching, evangelism. And, and I think oh, how fun that the Lord put us together as a couple, right? And and then and seeing how they go hand in hand, I know that part of the power when I preach is not just because of my good study. It's because I have a partner who's praying for us as I preach. See, the two go together. I have a partner that prays for this sermon all week. Prays for me, prays for the sermon. And he doesn't just do that for me because I'm his wife. He prays for I don't even tell you because you'd be embarrassed, but many pastors in North County meets with them on a regular basis, prays for them. Because the ministry of the word and prayer go together. It's interesting that they said, we don't have time. It's not just that they were doing the wrong ministry. It's just that we don't have the time to do it all. We don't have the time to significantly pray if we're over here taking care of administrative issues and taking care of other valid needs in the church. And prayer is a valid need because church work is teamwork. So as we close our service uh, this morning, we've looked now through Acts 1 through 6, and we've seen really three kinds of attacks Satan has attempted to do to destroy the church from its infancy. And, and, and the first one we, we see when the Jewish authorities, right, they tried to suppress it by force, right, persecution, uh, uh, heavy hand, suppress the church by force. The second one we saw with um, the couple, Ananias and, and, and uh, Sapphira, remember? And how really the church, the Satan tried to get into the church by internal corruption of hypocrisy, right? And then the third one we see here in Acts chapter 6, where Satan's trying to, to, to destroy church by a few squabbling church members to, to get it to lose its focus, to get it distracted from the ministry of the word. To think about every other thing except for the ministry of the word. Get their leaders, their pastors doing other things. That is a strategy of the enemy. See? And, 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 and I'm so grateful that the apostles were keen enough to understand Satan's scheme. They were spiritually in tune enough with the Holy Spirit to recognize that is not right. And it's not arrogant for us to say so. That is, that is a scheme of the enemy to destroy us. We will not be the best team for Christ if we listen how we're doing right now, right? We need that same kind of spiritual discernment. We need to be aware of, of, of force on the outside that's trying to destroy us, of internal hypocrisy, and of distraction. We need to be aware of those things and stay focused on how can we be the best team for Jesus. With what we have, with who God has brought, we have, like the Oakland A's, the possibility for a winning team. I mean, they were probably shaking their heads like, that is impossible. you got nothing compared to the big dog. You don't have the money. You don't have the talent. You don't have, you don't have the resources. And he's saying, if you work as a team. And if you watch the movie, that was not easy to get everyone on board as a team. But if you work as a team, you got what it takes. Right? Amen? Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you that it cuts right to the heart and illuminates our minds and it helps us to see spiritually. It takes the scales off our eyes, Lord, that sometimes we, we want to see through glasses of this world and through our own selves. And yet your word, Lord, is, is sometimes uncomfortable. It's challenging. It threatens our status quo. Lord, but your word brings us the truth, the truth of your kingdom, the truth of how your church works. 
And your word is the hope that we have to really find fulfillment and joy and peace in your kingdom come now. So, Lord, as, as, as we just digest this all week, Lord, would you just put it on each of our hearts? What have you laid on each of us as part of the team here at Oak Hills, Lord? What gifting, what, what grace have you given us, Lord? Help us to see that more clearly this week, Lord. Help us to respond to it in obedience and faith, even if no one else sees it, Lord. And help us say no to all the other things that are just distractions. Because we want to honor you first, Father. We want to live for you. Help us to do that. And Lord, as we give now as a, as a sign of our faith and our trust and our worship unto you, we pray, Lord, that you would turn these meager loaves and fishes into a winning team. You would bless these resources to do your good work and be your hands and feet and light in the world. We pray all this in Jesus' name, our Lord and King.